This morning, my sermon title is <clears throat> The Family of God. <clears throat> and we passed outlines for you to, to have an easy reference to the and follow me and, of course, facilitate your note-taking. My text is the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 1 through 9, 19 and 20, and verses 26 to 28. It should be in the New King James behind me, is it? Okay, Carrie did a good job. Oh, just the outline. Yeah. I, I, I go through every verse that's pertinent anyway as I go through the sermon, so you'll, you'll hear it. But this morning I'm going to be adding <clears throat> an introduction. My sermon is fairly well contained within chapter 45 of the book of Genesis. However, a brief history of prior chapters is helpful. I can assure you that it's going to be very brief, because I assume that the story of Joseph from prisoner to prince is well known by most of you. And so it should be very familiar. So go with me now to Psalm 1914 so that we can seek God this morning together. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning, may the, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our, be our strength and be our redeemer. Amen? Amen? Well, the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph was born in Mesopotamian town of Haran to his parents Jacob and Rachel. And at the age of six, he and his family moved to Canaan, and they eventually settled in Hebron. Now, Jacob, his father, he displayed extra affection to Joseph because Joseph was really born of his old age. And so he presented him, as you know, with a specially crafted color, colored garment. Well, this prompted feelings of jealousy among his brothers, especially the sons of Jacob's second wife, Leah. These ill feelings exacerbated when Joseph repeated and told of two dreams that he had had. Those dreams, he portrayed them as the brothers bowing to him. In the first, the brothers were gathering wheat in the field, and the brothers' bundles bowed to Joseph's. In the second, Joseph envisioned the sun and the moon and 11 stars present, which symbolized his parents and his brothers bowing to him. Soon enough, Joseph was 17, and the tension came to a head. At that time, Jacob instructed Joseph to go visit his brothers in the fields where they were tending their sheep. Little did he know that this would be the last time that he saw his son for at least 22 years before a reunion. And so seizing their chance, the brothers threw this unsuspecting Joseph into a pit. A short while later, they spotted an Arab caravan passing this scene, and the brothers sold Joseph to the traders. And of course, you know, he, he was eventually brought to Egypt where he was sold to Potiphar, one of King Pharaoh's ministers. And after a while, things started to look up for this young Joseph. Divine success enabled him to find favor in his master's eyes, and he was appointed to be the head of the Potiphar estate. But this was not to last long, as you know. Attracted by his handsome looks, Potiphar's wife desired to be intimate with him, and to her consternation, Joseph continuously refused. 
One day, when no one was at home except the mistress and Joseph, she took hold of Joseph's garment, demanding that he consent, thinking quickly. He sneaked, got out of his garb, and ran outside. But Potiphar's wife turned the table on Joseph, telling her husband that it was Joseph who had tried to entice her. As you can imagine, there was an angry reaction from his master by placing his trustworthy assistant in prison. But we know that Joseph's charisma followed him to prison as well. And the warden, now you can imagine how God works, the warden appointed him as his right-hand man. He was a prisoner. In the time it developed that he had an additional area of giftings. And when the king's royal cupbearer and his baker were brought to prison, Joseph successfully interpreted their dreams, correctly predicting that the cupbearer would be released and the baker would be hanged. You can go along with me if you know the answers. Two years later, King Pharaoh himself experienced two dreams And, of course, none of his advisors could even give him a hint of what they meant. Remembering the Hebrew youth of his prison days, the cupbearer suggested that Joseph be summoned. Joseph is now 30, and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams as being a divine prediction for seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And he advised Pharaoh to store grain in advance during the years of plenty, in order to accommodate the years of famine. Of course, the pharaoh was impressed with his wisdom, and he appointed him to be his viceroy, second in command only to the king himself. And he directed Joseph to plan and prepare and consider the situation in Egypt for the years of the famine. Meanwhile, We know that the effects of the famine in Egypt were widespread and they touched the land of Canaan. And then the brothers, the people in Canaan, heard and understood that there was grain to be had in Egypt. So the brothers journeyed to Egypt to buy precious food from the viceroy. Of course, they had no idea that the viceroy was their brother. Amen. So this narrative brings me to the focus of my sermon which is chapter 45 of Genesis. Amen. Well, we have a little boy talking to his daddy one time, and he said, Daddy, where were you born? Dad said, well, I was born in Kentucky. He said, well, where was Mama born? And Dad said, she was born in Indiana. He said, well, where was I born? And the dad said, you were born in Georgia. And he said, well, where was my baby sister born? Dad said, she was born in Alabama. (laughs) Then the little boy broke out in a grin. And he said, Dad, isn't it great that God got us all together? (laughs) There is nothing like having the family all together. In Genesis 45, we see the greatest family reunion in human history. It has been 23 years since Joseph and his brothers have met face to face. Now, even now, he knows them, but they do not know him. 
You know that over the years they had been made to sweat, to fear and to fret and regret what they had done to him. But God has kept his word. All of his brothers are now bowing down to him just like God had said in Joseph's dream. Joseph was over them, above them, and he could do anything he wanted to do to them. It was because of that that he forgave them. Benjamin Franklin once said, Doing an injury puts you below your enemy. Revenge makes you equal to your enemy. But forgiveness puts you above him. In more ways than one, Joseph was above his brothers. He is a picture, a portrait, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to put it another way, the Lord Jesus is our heavenly Joseph. Even though we have betrayed him, we continue to reject him, we as humans crucified him, and he still wants us all in the family. And the way Joseph dealt with his brothers is the same way that Jesus deals with his brethren. So first in your outline, consider the revelation that confronted them. Now Joseph knew his brothers before they knew him. They would not have known who he was had he not revealed himself to them. John said of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 1 verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world knew him not. You know, the way Joseph reveals himself to those who knew him not is the same way that Jesus reveals himself. First, consider a private revelation. Our text, verse 1, states, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. This revelation was between Joseph and his brothers. All the Egyptian slaves, servants, and soldiers were ordered out of the palace. This is a picture of how the Lord Jesus reveals himself to you and to me. He does it privately in our heart, in our soul, in our spirit, with that still, small voice. You know, one moment his brothers knew him as Zaphanah Paniah, which is the name that the Pharaoh gave to Joseph, which means, listen, the Savior of the world. The next moment they knew him as Joseph, your brother. It is one thing to know in your head that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior, the Lord, but salvation comes when you know him as your Savior and your Lord. Second, consider a passionate revelation. Verse 2 states, And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. These were tears of sorrow and joy. Sorrow over 23 years of fractured fellowship and ruined relationship. Years when love had been replaced by hatred, harmony had been replaced by jealousy, unity had been replaced by division. But there were also tears of joy. Joseph and his brothers were together again physically, and soon they would be together again emotionally and spiritually. You see... 
Joseph's eyes were full of tears because his heart was full of love. And every time you read of Jesus weeping, there were always tears of love and compassion. You see no revenge, no resentment, no retaliation in Joseph, just a heart full of love. And no matter what his brothers had done, it did not change who they were. They were his brothers. Jesus loves his brothers just like that. And no matter what you have done, Jesus will receive you with those same tears of love. You know, one man had a son who was a terrible son. He was a rebellious sheep. He had done so many things to disgrace his father. And the father had gone the second, the third, and the fourth mile with this boy. One of his neighbors was trying to counsel with him and said, If that boy was my son, I would beat him within an inch of his life, give him a tongue lashing that he would never forget, kick him out of the house, and never have anything else to do with him. This father looked at him with tears in his eyes, and he said, Yes, if he were your son, I would too. (laughs) But he's not your son. He's my son. I can't do that. That is the love that Jesus has for us. Third, consider a plain revelation. Our text, verse 3, states in the beginning, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Joseph makes one simple statement. I am Joseph. That is all it took. That is all they needed to hear. No explanation, no exposition, just simply, I am Joseph. Do you know that the gospel is just that simple, just that plain? You know, I think of Saul on the Damascus Road, going from city to city, church to church, trying to stamp out this new cult called Christianity. And then he sees a blinding light, and he's knocked flat on his back, and he says in Acts 9.5, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Instantly, Saul went from sinner to saint, from blasphemer to believer, from persecutor to preacher. You know, we make salvation so complicated. We arm ourselves with arguments, methods, books, tracts, and rituals. The Lord makes this Simple. Just, I am Jesus. Fourth, consider a powerful revelation. Our text, verse 8, states, For now it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he has not made me a father, and he has now made me a father to Pharaoh, and the Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. I want you to notice that Joseph was not revealed to them as a slave, but as a sovereign. Not as a criminal, but as a king. Not as a lad, but as a lord. And when Jesus reveals himself in a saving fashion to you, it won't be as a helpless babe in a cradle. It won't be as a dead martyr on the cross. It will be as a risen Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords on a throne ruling over this universe. 
And second, considering your outline, the realization that convicted them. Again, verse 3 states, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. Now immediately, his brothers begin to quake and shake. The verse says they were dismayed. The word dismayed literally means terrified. They wanted to run and hide. They were convicted of who Joseph was and what they had done to him. But first consider they were convicted by his identity. Here was Joseph. The brother they hated enough to kill. The brother that they sold into slavery. The brother they, that they had left for dead. Now he had the power of life and death in his hands. One word from Joseph and his brothers would have been turned into Egyptian dog meat. You can always tell when a person has truly met the Lord Jesus because he'll be just like Peter, who for the first time when he met Jesus, he said in Luke 5, 8, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. Second, they were convicted by their iniquity. We see their conviction much earlier in chapter 42, verse 21. It states, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore his distress has come upon us. Their conviction led to their confession. So then in chapter 42, verse 28, it states, they say, what is this that God has done to us? Again, they said in chapter 44, verse 16, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Sin had found them out. They had been convicted of it. They had confessed it to the Lord, and this led to their contrition. And so these brothers were convicted and contrite, and now they were caught, and they needed a Savior. And before anyone can be saved, two things must be true. First, they must see themselves as sinners, and two, they must see Jesus as the Savior. There is no conversion without conviction. Listen. If you do not see yourself as a sinner, you will never see your need for a Savior. If you don't see Jesus as the Savior, you will never see yourself as a sinner in need of Jesus, the Savior. You know, a person can be saved without many things. He can be saved without baptism, without church membership, without knowing one single Bible verse without giving one cent to God. But he cannot be saved without a conviction of sin. You know, two thieves died with Jesus, but only one went to heaven. And the reason is, only one was convicted of his sin. Luke 23, verses 39 to 41 state, One said, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other said, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Listen. Listen carefully. 
Not everyone who knows they need to be saved will be saved. But only those who know they need to be saved can be saved. Third, in your outline, consider the reconciliation that comforted them. Well, now we come not only to the climax of this story, but the climax of the life of Joseph. What happens in the rest of this chapter is an Old Testament illustration of that New Testament doctrine called reconciliation. This chapter is actually a commentary on 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, which states, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us the word, to us the word of reconciliation. Three miracles take place right before your very eyes as Joseph is reconciled to his brother, brothers. First, Miracle, grief was used by God. Our text, verse 5, states, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. See, Joseph wanted his brothers to understand that what they had caused to happen to him for evil, God had allowed to happen to him for good. And he repeated it, Several times. He said in verse 7, And God sent me before you. Verse 8, So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Joseph is not trying to minimize their sin. He was trying to maximize God's sovereignty. Everything that was meant for evil in Joseph's life, God used it for good. Listen, <clears throat> for us, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Amen? See, Joseph repeated this in chapter 50, verse 20, which, which states, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. You know, nowhere was grief more miraculously used by God than at the cross of Calvary. When you look at the cross from a human standpoint, in man's dealing with God, the cross is a grievous tragedy. But in God's dealing with man, the cross is a glorious triumph. Second miracle, guilt was used was met with grace. <clears throat> so our text, verses 4 and 5, states, And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Here, Joseph says three things to his brothers. One, Please come near to me. I am Joseph, your brother. Two, do not be grieved or angry with yourself. 
Now, listen carefully to what Joseph was saying. First of all, he was saying, I love you. You never have to be afraid to come near to someone who loves you. Number two, he was saying, I forgive you. He did not call himself Joseph, your judge, Joseph, your executioner, or Joseph, your enemy. He said, I am Joseph, your brother. And then third, he was saying, I accept you. Don't dwell on the past. God used it. All is forgiven and all is forgotten. Everything his brothers had done to him, all of the hatred, bitterness, and jealousy that they had had toward him was buried in the grave of his forgetfulness. There are two things you had better keep handy when people do you wrong. One, you need a bad memory. And two, you need a big mental cemetery to put all your graves of forgetfulness. Now, Clara Barton, she's the founder and president of the United States Red Cross. She never held a grudge. She was once reminded by a friend of a wrong done to her some years earlier. And the friend said, don't you remember what that person did to you? Clara Barton replied, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. Now, someone may object that Joseph had a right to punish his brothers, and that may be true. But he had a greater responsibility to forgive his brothers. And again, Joseph was not glossing over their sin, but instead of using their sin as a place for punishment, he made it a platform for pardon. That is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. The third miracle, gloom was turned into glory. You know, after he tells his brothers to come in in verse 4, he tells them to go in verse 9. He says, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. They were to go to their father Jacob with a message. They were to bring him to Egypt so they might be all in the family. Now notice what they told their father. For 20-plus years, Jacob thought his Joseph was dead. So their first message, verse 26, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. That had to be the best news that Jacob had ever heard in all of his long life. And I want to tell you, the greatest news that you will ever hear in all of your life is that God's son, Jesus, is alive. And then they told him that Joseph was ruling. So they continued in verse 26. He is governor over all of the land in Egypt. But then they told him that Joseph was receptive. Verses 27 and 28 state, But when they told him of all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. When Jacob heard the words and saw the wagons, he said, I will go. You know, when Jacob got up to leave, he was leaving poverty to go to plenty. He was leaving rags to go to riches. You see, when the Pharaoh heard that Joseph and his brothers, that he had brothers and a family, here's what he said in verse 19 and 20. 
Now you are commanded. Do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and their wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods. For the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. You know, when you, when you read that, you have to be grateful for Hebrews 2.11, which tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. And because of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns on high, and he's taken us into the presence of his heavenly Father, and he has introduced us as his brethren, we too have peace with God, the protection of God, and provision from God. Amen? You know, God is so gracious. You should, you know, the service is over, and as, as we go forth this morning, I want you to count your blessings. I want you to see what it is that you really have. And you'd be surprised that your blessings that give you the greatest satisfaction are those that are not material, are not of this world. But I urge you, foremost, for it to happen, is first, you've got to make sure that you are all in the family. That means you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to submit and surrender to his lordship. Amen? Amen. See you next week.